Good to hear from you, Harish and Ginny. Uh, we would love to uh, have you serve with us. If you have any questions about that, come t- talk to me. My name's Dave, or we'll send you over to Johnny and Rachel. They would love to talk with you more. Uh, we're going to dig into God's word now, and so I thought it would be appropriate to say a prayer and ask for his help. So would you pray with me before we begin? Heavenly Father, we just bow our heads and close our eyes for just a brief moment uh, to acknowledge that we could not even come into your presence as we recognize that you are holy and that we are sinful. And had it not been uh, for the sacrifice of your son and us being clothed in his righteousness, we could not even approach you today. Uh, we could not even understand your word, would it not be for your help. And so, Lord Jesus, we ask you uh, to bless this time. Holy Spirit, open up blind eyes and deaf ears and open up all of our hearts so that we might uh, see you in the word today. In Jesus' name, amen. You know what I hate? Spoiler alerts. Somebody spoils the ending of something I haven't seen yet. Please don't tell me. Uh, I will go to extraordinary lengths to avoid learning the ending ahead of time. I get very upset with my friends who accidentally slip up and spill the beans because then I feel like my whole experience is ruined. It's so annoying. People say, spoiler alert, just stop it. Just stop it. Just because you've seen the movie already, just because you've seen the book, well, read the book already, just because you uh, have watched the game and you know how it ended, that doesn't mean you have to brag uh, and tell me what you know and spoil it uh, for me and the rest of us. I agree with uh, film critic Roger Ebert, who once warned all of his fellow critics in this way, that they never have a right to play the spoiler. I agree. Spoiling the ending for people is just ethically and morally wrong. Case closed. (laughs) Or is it? A recent study from two researchers at the University of California, San Diego, suggests that spoilers don't spoil stories after all. Instead, contrary to what I often think, and what I think is generally the popular wisdom out there, the study showed that spoiler alerts might even enhance our enjoyment of the story or the show. The study ran three different experiments based on 12 short stories. Each version of the story was read by 30 people. Surprisingly, the researchers found that the study participants actually preferred the spoiled versions of the suspenseful stories. Just one example, one case, participants were told before reading the story that a condemned man's daring escape was all just a fantasy before the noose snaps around his neck. The spoiler alert helped them enjoy the story even more. Now, why is that? Uh, One of the researchers had an interesting theory. He said it could be that once you know how the story turns out, you're more comfortable processing the information and you can focus on a deeper understanding of the story. Hmm. Well, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, as followers of Christ, the Bible has some major spoiler alerts. It tells us all about how the story of the whole world is going to end. Apparently, God himself doesn't think that 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 would diminish our enjoyment of being part of this story at all. In fact, as the researcher said, the, the the Bible's spoiler alerts can help us focus on a deeper understanding of our stories. This morning, as we continue through our series in the book of Daniel, uh, that's really what the whole series has been about. The book of Daniel is like one big, gigantic spoiler alert. Here, God is teaching us, his people, about the future. And further, uh, that all of history has been planned 
perfectly, and it all fits together like a giant jigsaw puzzle. Nowhere is this found to be more true than in our text today, Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. Here we have the prophecy of Daniel's 70 weeks. It's been called the paragon or the backbone or the crown jewel of all Bible prophecy. Well-known Bible teacher, Dr. H. L. Wilmington said, this is the most important, the most amazing, and the most profound single prophecy in the entire word of God. That tells us something about the magnitude of what we're about to read here today. Some of you, uh, you're very familiar with this passage, and that's great. But I would encourage you to listen carefully, as there's always something new to learn when you go back to the word of God, even if you've heard it before. Others of you, perhaps you're here today and you're not familiar with this at all, and hopefully this will be insightful for you. And then maybe there's some people here today, and if you're totally honest, you're here and you kind of have your doubts about whether or not the Bible's really true or Christianity is really true. I would encourage you to listen today with an open mind, as I believe you can't really explain the words of Daniel chapter 9 without the supernatural being real. And so listen very carefully. Now, before we get into this, full disclosure, last week, our world partner, Jason Casper, who did an outstanding job for us exposing Daniel chapter 9, he did promise us one thing uh, that I'm not totally sure that I can make good on. He said, today, you would get a crystal clear explanation of what this text means. (laughs) Friends, that is a tall order. I'll try. You need to know, though, that for thousands of years, brilliant scholars have disagreed on the exact meaning of this passage. There are several really difficult, thorny, tough interpretive issues that you have to make here, uh, that you have to decide on here. For example, there's a disagreement about when these 70 weeks begin. There's, there's a disagreement about whether to take these time periods literally or figuratively. There's a disagreement about what exactly is this prophecy pointing toward? Is it something from the intertestamental period? Is it something about Christ? Or is it something even yet launched into the future? And there are several solid views on each of those issues, many of them held by wonderful Christian scholars who love the Lord and who take the book of Daniel very seriously. Even in the early centuries of the church, interpretations about this passage differed widely. For example, Jerome, in his commentary on the book of Daniel, was reluctant to set forth his own interpretation of this prophecy, he said, because it is unsafe to pass judgment upon the opinions of the great teachers of the church and to set one above another. And so Jerome simply goes on to list nine different possible interpretations of this text without commentary about what his view was. It's really hard to decide which way to go at times. I've actually created a handout which is four pages that's in the back uh, on the Welcome Center table. If you'd like to read more about other views, that's available for you to take as you uh, leave today. Uh, But what I'm going to do is just simply present one view. It's my view. Uh, I hold this view somewhat tentatively. Uh, It's called the dispensational view. It's a popular view, at least here in America, because uh, it was talked about in the Schofield Reference Bible uh, about 100 years ago, and then it was popularized by Hal Lindsey back in the 70s and 80s in his work. And then uh, in the 90s, the Left Behind series kind of adopted this view as well. And so um, that's kind of the view that I'm presenting. If you've never heard of that term, dispensationalism, before, uh, you don't need to know about that. But the hallmark of that system is that it takes the Bible literally 
and that generally it sees a distinction between Israel and the church. That's what I mean by that term. Now, I know some of you may not agree with the view that I'm about to present here today, and that is okay. This is a gray area. We can just agree to disagree. That's totally fine. But the reason why I'm presenting this one view is because this was primarily the view taught in my training at Dallas Seminary. Uh, and the, the other reason is if I explain all the other views, it might take us 70 weeks to finish this sermon. And so <laughs> I want to have lunch today. So do you. And so uh, let's check it out together. Grab your Bible, grab your calculator if you'd like to grab that too. And let's take a look as I remind you of the context of chapter 9 uh, in verse 1 where we saw last week. But if you weren't here, uh, here's how chapter 9 began. Let's take a look at it. In the first year of Darius, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. So here's the context. The year is 539 BC. Daniel is praying. Puritan author John Owen once said, you are what you are in prayer when you're before the Lord alone and nothing more. Daniel was a man of prayer. Here he is praying for his people. Now, who are his people? Israel. You can talk back to me. It's okay. And so here he is praying for his people. His heart was for the people of Israel, and he's wondering what's going to happen to them. And then Daniel was reading the scriptures because he was not just a man of prayer. He was also a man of the word. And even though he was a prophet himself in his own right, that didn't mean he also didn't want to be familiar with the words of the other prophets, which tells me if even Daniel did that, what should I be doing, right? How much more should we be delving into the word of God? So he's reading the words of this prophet Jeremiah, and he realizes that he is coming to the end of the 70 years of exile, the 70 years of captivity that Jeremiah had prophesied. And so he's praying, and he's pleading with God on behalf of his people. That's what this prophecy is all about. It's about what God is going to do for his covenant people, Israel. Now, don't get me wrong. Yes, he's going to do something for Israel, but God is also going to do something that will affect the whole world. And he reveals that here. So Daniel's praying. Then an angel of God comes in response to his prayer. Just take a look at that, skipping down to verse 21. It says, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. He gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed, so give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision." And just notice again a few things. Notice Daniel is given a benediction of divine love in this text. He says he is highly esteemed. Another way to translate that phrase is that he is greatly loved. Why is Daniel greatly loved? Was it because Daniel was so godly? Was it because Daniel was so obedient? Although, although he was, that is not the reason while it is true that Daniel was a great prophet, still, too, Daniel was a sinner just like you and me. Daniel recognized that God was holy and no one could stand before him. So let me suggest to you that the reason why Daniel is greatly loved 
is mentioned here in the text as it says that the, the angel Gabriel came to him during the time of evening offering. That might seem like an insignificant detail until you realize Daniel has been in Babylon for decades. Yet his mind is still thinking in terms of the sacrifices of the temple. John Calvin said about that, Already 70 years have passed away during which Daniel had never observed any sacrifice offered. And yet he still mentions sacrifices as if he was still attending daily in the temple. To put it simply, Daniel was greatly loved and favored by God because God had made for him a way, a way to be in fellowship with him. And that way was not just for Daniel, but for all of those who would put their trust in the sacrifice of God. But when you think about the sacrificial system, I want you to just hold that in the back of your brain because wait until you're about to wait, wait till you see what God has planned Uh, for a sacrifice later on in Daniel chapter 9. But that's the background. Now here comes the great prophecy. Start with verse 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and for your holy city to finish transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Remember, Daniel was reading Jeremiah which told him it was going to be 70 years of exile in Babylon. But now the angel Gabriel says there will not just be 70 years, but 70 weeks decreed for your people in the future. Now, when you see the term weeks there, that's the Hebrew word shimvah, and it can mean a week, like seven days, but it can also mean just sevens, and it's kind of like our English word dozen, that just means 12. And so while he's talking about 70 periods of seven, what he really has in mind is not so much 70 periods of seven days, but 70 periods of seven years. It's used that way in the Old Testament in many other places. For example, in Genesis 29, when Jacob works for Rachel, he works for her for a week of years, seven years to marry her. Uh, But those years seem like only a few days to him because of his great love for her. If this was just 70 weeks, 70 periods of seven seven days, that would only be like a year and a half, right? Seems kind of silly that all this stuff could possibly be accomplished in a year and a half. That would be a very busy year and a half to get all of that done, although Donald Trump might be able to handle that. I don't know, even in that case. I'm kidding. Okay, here we go. So that's the idea. Let me just show you up on the screen. Uh, The message is that there will be 70 periods of seven years or 490 years which I interpret literally. Some say those are more figurative or symbolic. The people that advocate that view uh, still think it's a period of time and things will actually happen during those periods of time. time. But it's not, it's, I lean more towards the literal view of this. So if you add up 77-year periods of time, you come up with 490 years. Is everybody following me so far? Great. Okay, great. Now we have the basic time frame of what is going to come for Daniel's people. Once again, who is that for Daniel? Who's Daniel's people? Israel. And it says for his holy city. Now, what city would that have been for Daniel? Jerusalem. Very good. See, Daniel sits at the fulcrum between Israel's past and Israel's future. He sits within the 70 years of captivity 
in Babylon, and there will be six things that will come to pass during these 70 weeks. Let's take a look at them very carefully again. God has promised that he will do these six things. In fact, let's read them there on the screen. Let's say them out loud together. Number one, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Now, some people see these six prophecies already fulfilled by Christ. Other people see these prophecies as yet to be fulfilled. Personally, I believe the first three prophecies were accomplished at Christ's first coming because that was the place at the cross where our Savior took on our transgressions and he said on the cross, it is finished. It was at the cross where our Lord made an end of sin. And thirdly, it was at the cross where he made an atonement for iniquity. All praise be to his name for those wonderful three promises being fulfilled. But I believe numbers four through six here will be fulfilled, not at his first coming, but at his second coming. Number four is when he will bring in his kingdom of righteousness. That didn't happen yet. Number five means he will fulfill all the prophecies of God in the whole Bible. That means every covenant promise that God has made We'll find its completion during that time. That hasn't happened yet. And number six, to anoint the most holy place. Now, another way to translate that phrase is to anoint the most holy one. And so some see that as a reference to Christ. Personally, I take that to be a reference to the holy millennial temple. Uh, We find a description of that temple in Ezekiel 40. And so building and anointing the new holy place is still yet to come. But all six of these prophecies will happen in this period of 70 weeks. That's the prophecy. Everybody still with me? Okay. That's only the first verse. I need a break. Can you see why people can't agree on all this stuff? Okay. You understand? It's difficult. Let's look at verse 25. So... You are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Now, right here, Daniel gives the starting point for this prophecy to begin. And here's how it begins. It's almost like God has a stopwatch. And he's going to start his stopwatch at a certain moment. And it's this moment, there's going to be an issuing of a decree. An issuing of a decree. Now, what decree is that, and when is that going to happen? Again, as you might guess, there's several views on this. Brilliant scholars disagree. There are other major decrees that are at play here. There's the decree of Cyrus in 538 BC, allowing them to return to the land. There's a decree in Ezra 6 in 458 BC, allowing them to rebuild the temple. But there's another decree that's found in Nehemiah chapter 2, and this is my view. In Nehemiah chapter 2, we have a record of a very important decree that gets made to restore and rebuild the city. Now, if you know the book of Nehemiah, then you remember this moment right here. If you don't know the book of Nehemiah, just know that he was a leader of Israel. Uh, He had been given an incredible burden by God in his heart for the city of Jerusalem, which was in ruins, and his heart was just broken over the city. And then he, while serving the king, asks the king for permission to go and rebuild it. Here's what it says in Nehemiah 2.1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. Picture the scene. Here's Nehemiah. He's serving this foreign king. 
And he's sad, which was not allowed in the presence of the king back then. The king notices that and says, hey, Nehemiah, what's wrong? Then he says this, I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, what is it you want? Now, teenagers, that's the question you want to hear from your parents right there. And this is when you ask for what you want. (laughs) Nehemiah's concern is for his city to be rebuilt. And the king puts him on the spot. And he's got like a split second to decide what he wants to say. And here's what the text says. It says, then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. That is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Have you ever been in a situation where you don't have a whole lot of time to pray for a long time, but you just got to shoot up like a two-second arrow prayer to heaven, and then you let it fly? This is Nehemiah. I prayed to the God of heaven, and then I said to the king. Here's what he said. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Wow. That's a bold request. And then Nehemiah asks for some official kingdom paperwork to take with him and make this whole project a government reality. And then it says in verse 7, And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. Nehemiah asks, the king says, yes. And right there, a decree is made to restore and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Now, all this happens on a human level, but what neither one of these two men knew was that as soon as that happened, God Almighty in heaven started his stopwatch. And just like that, I believe the 77s for Israel began. Tick, 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 tick. Here's why I'm explaining this passage in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. It sets the date. Look again at the top of that passage. It says it's in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. We know that date. Nisan 1 was March 5th, 444 B.C. Now we know the beginning of the 77s. Everybody following me so far? Good, because it's about to get a lot more complicated. (laughs) Let's go back to the scripture. Next, we see that our time frame of 70 weeks is broken down even farther. Let's go back to the scripture. Next slide. Into parts. The angel says, first we will have a period of seven weeks And then we will have a period of 62 weeks, which together, 7 and 62, make up 69 weeks. And you convert that into years, that's 483 years. Did you follow me with that? Okay, let me just show you on the chart. Next slide. There will be seven sevens, that's 49 years. Then there's going to be 62 sevens, that's 434 years. And then there's going to be one last seven, that's seven years. If you're with me, say amen. Okay, I lost half of you so far, but just hit, come back. I'm, I'll, I'll, we'll get there again. The decree goes forth, going back to the scripture, next slide, to rebuild the city, but the prophecy in Daniel 9 says it will be built in times of distress with plaza and moat, or some translations say with tree, street and trench. It just means you'll build the city inside and out. Now, you need to know that that's exactly what happened historically by Nehemiah and the other leaders. They go to Jerusalem, they start the wall, they complete that in record time, but then by the time they finish all the streets and the trench, that takes exactly 49 years to do, or seven sevens. And he does that 
amidst much opposition, times of distress. And that prophecy was fulfilled literally, which is pretty amazing. That's the first segment, the seven sevens. After that, we have 62 more sevens until what? Until Messiah the Prince. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, the word Messiah there is the Hebrew word Mashiach, or it's, it's translated anointed one or Christ. Now, in the Old Testament, the high priest was the anointed one. He was anointed with oil as a symbol of his empowerment by the Holy Spirit. But this person here is not going to be a priest. He's going to be a prince or a ruler or a king. And so Israel is waiting for this person for this promised king, but he would not just be a king, he would also be a priest. He has to be both a king and a priest. And so this promised Messiah is prophesied, not just here, but all over the Old Testament. He's the hope of Israel, uh, found in almost every book of the Old Testament. He's called the hope of the Jews. He's called the king who would be the heir to the throne of David. He's called the branch, the son of Jesse, the star of David, the seed of the woman, the lily of the valley, the rose of Sharon, the bright and morning star, the prophet greater than Moses, the captain of the Lord's army, the deliverer from Zion, the great kinsman redeemer, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Does anybody know who I'm talking about here? We saw him in Daniel chapter 2. He is the stone not cut with human hands that would come and destroy the kingdoms of this world. We saw him in Daniel chapter 7 as the great son of man coming on the clouds. The list of his titles goes on and on, but all of that is summarized in that one title, Messiah the Prince. Now, I'm about to get excited in just a second. Now, some, some of you here, you have a really hard time getting excited about math or a word problem from math, I know. But this is the most awesome Word problem from math you've ever seen in your whole life. For you technical people, if you take 69 sevens, that's 483 years, and that's 173,880 days. You have to convert from lunar years to solar years uh, to get that number. That's what they do, because that's the way the calendar worked back then. Now, side point, let me just ask you this. What was the name of the angel who gave Daniel this message? Gabriel, right? Gabriel is the one who brings this information about the calendar of God. I say that because you need to know what his job is. Uh, for example, Kelly Abrams works here. She's our office manager. She keeps the calendar at Millington Baptist Church. She keeps everything straight. That bulletin you have in your hand, that is her responsibility. Uh, she makes sure all the rooms are available and there's no conflicts with the times or rooms. And there's a lot going on here at Millington. So it's not an easy task. We've got a lot of stuff happening uh, every single day in our building. And it's enough to kind of make your head spin. And so that's Kelly's job. She keeps the calendar and she is excellent at her job. Just like that, be nice to Kelly, just like that, Gabriel keeps the calendar in heaven, and he is excellent at his job. Why do I say that? What's the name of the angel who comes to the Virgin Mary and says, behold, you have found favor with God? Gabriel. There he is again, keeping things on schedule. Now back to the math. Okay, 69 sevens, 483 years, 173,880 days. If you calculate that out, you'll find that exactly 173,880 days after the issuing of the decree found in Nehemiah chapter 2 comes out to March 30th, or the 10th of Nisan, 33 AD. What happened on that day? Well, we know what happened on that day. 
Let me just remind you exactly what happened on that day. Uh, there's a record of that day found in the gospel according to Luke. On that day, Jesus Christ, the anointed one, Messiah the prince, gives very specific instructions to his disciples. Let me just remind you the instructions. It's recorded in Luke 19. It says this, After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say, the Lord needs it. Now, how many of you think the colt is going to be right there, exactly where he said it was going to be? Yeah, I got my money right there. Anybody want to take that bet? God planned this thing hundreds of years in advance, not just down to the year, down to the day. His father made sure. Then it tells us in verse 32, sure enough, those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he told them. Amazing. God in his infinite wisdom had planned this day before the foundation of the world. You know what that means? It means God really is in control. Our God has everything planned out, down not just to the year, down to the very day. And everything is going according to his plan. I know this is a lot today. I know Daniel 9 is confusing. And I know we're really moving here. But we got to get this. What this means for you and me is that your life is under his control too. No matter what view you take on this passage, we can all see that that's true here. Everything is under his control. Now, I think we can all admit that at times it doesn't feel like everything is under God's control, but it doesn't matter how I feel. It matters what's true, and what's true is what's said in Ephesians chapter 1, that he works all things together according to the counsel of his will. That means there's no accidents. That goes for you too. God set the time and day where you were going to live and the place you were going to live. You have the people around you that God has placed around you for a purpose and for a reason. Acts chapter 17 goes further and says God has set the times and boundaries of your habitation. That means you're working in the place that you're working because God has put you there. That means that you're, you're in the neighborhood where you live because God has placed you in the neighborhood where you live. Students, that means this fall, uh, when you get your class assignments, you're sitting next to the student that God wants you to sit next to this year, and your locker is next to the person that God wants you to be next to uh, this year because God is in control. Esther Field said things don't just happen to us who love God. They're planned by his own dear hand. Then, then molded and shaped and timed by his clock, things don't just happen, they're planned. Things don't just happen to us who love God. They're planned by his own dear hand, then molded and shaped and timed by his clock. Things don't just happen. They're planned. This prophecy is just so amazing to me. Because I know you know the story, but just, just picture the scene from heaven's perspective. As God the Father watches everything going according to his plan. The disciples find the donkey, and then it says this in verse 35. They brought it to Jesus threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. 
39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And then he says, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the very stones will cry out. Here we have the end of the 69 periods of seven. It just so happens to be the very same day the Son of God, Jesus, Messiah, the Prince, openly proclaims himself as the Christ in the triumphal entry. And there they are saying, blessed is the King. Paul says in Galatians, in the fullness of time, God sent his Son. And on Palm Sunday, the Son of God comes in and says, here I am, Messiah, your Prince, your King, righteous and bringing salvation Riding on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a donkey. Isn't this incredible? In other words, this prophecy of Daniel precisely states the exact day when the Lord Jesus would present himself to the nation of Israel and to the world over 400 years before it happened. Not just down to the year, which would be amazing enough, but down to the very exact day. I remember when I first learned about this prophecy and I was trying to study this thing and I saw the date that it came out as and I thought, this is just a bunch of manipulative Christian scholars uh, making this date fit. There's no way that it could be this precise. I just, I was, you know, my skeptical ears were just going, on, going crazy. But then as I began to study this word problem for myself, I brought out a calculator as I began to read the intricate work of Harold Honer in his book, Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. I remember just being completely blown away. I literally got out my calculator and I saw it, it all added up to 490 and my, my heart like skipped a beat. Huh? And I said, oh my God, what did you do? What did you do? Isaiah 46.10, he declares the end from the beginning. In his wisdom, he plans to give up his son before the foundation of the world, and then he left me and you a word problem buried deep in the book of Daniel about exactly when he would send his son, the Savior, to the world, and he lets us work it out just to have our socks blown off. Sir Isaac Newton, when he was first studying this text, said we could stake the truth of Christianity on this prophecy alone. Yeah, there's different ways to interpret the details of this prophecy, but no matter what view you take, all of the results are stunning. So according to Daniel, he had to come during this window. Friends, only Jesus fits the criteria here. That means either Jesus really was Messiah the Prince, or there's never going to be one. Here he is, 500 years before Jesus was ever born, and it comes true. Isn't that incredible? Here's the sad thing, though. Most of the leaders of the nation of Israel at that time did not, or I should say would not, recognize him as the Messiah. They missed it. They missed it. They missed it. But here's what's even more amazing. Daniel said that would happen, too. Let's go back to Daniel 9 now. He says this, then verse 26. After the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And here's what gets even more detailed. The word cut off there in the Hebrew is kara. It's used of executing the death penalty on a criminal. Meaning the Messiah 
would come and be killed. That's exactly what happens. As Isaiah 53 says, it would happen. He would be cut off from the land of the living. The end point of the 69 weeks of Daniel is the last few days of Jesus' life, ending with his death on the cross as he was rejected by his people, his own people, Daniel's people. And then as a result, their city and sanctuary would be judged and destroyed by the people of the prince who was to come, which most people believe was the general Titus who came as the Roman general in A.D. 70 and set Jerusalem on fire and slaughtered so many Jews during that time and completely destroyed the city. Now with that in mind, let's just go back to Luke's gospel for a brief moment as he gives us another glimpse of our Lord Jesus on Palm Sunday. It says, after he rode into Jerusalem, later that day, verse 41 tells us this, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. And Jesus, knowing the words of Daniel, said, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Amazing. Jesus knows the consequences of this rejection, which Daniel talked about as well. But even though that is sad news, that too was all a part of God's sovereign plan. Back to Daniel chapter 9. You see that phrase in verse 26 that says, and will have nothing, that can also be translated, next slide, as, but not for himself. In fact, that's the way it reads in the King James and New King James. Why would it say that? Because Jesus didn't die for himself. He died for you. And he died for me. And not only for us, but also for the sins of the whole world. See, the other, another amazing thing about that date, the 10th of Nisan, Palm Sunday, was that was actually the same day as they prepared for the Passover that they would choose the lamb that would be slain during the feast. And here's Jesus presenting himself not only as Messiah the Prince, but also as the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Sinclair Ferguson said, perhaps... There was a special reason why this message came to Daniel about the time of the evening sacrifice. It's all about the gospel. It's all about him. It's all about the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. How it chases me down, fights till I'm found, and leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still, you give your love away. There's no shadow you won't light up. No mountain you won't climb up. Coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down. Or lie you won't tear down. Coming after me. What a glorious gospel. At this point, in the dispensational view, there's a gap. There's a gap between the 69th week and the 70th week. That's actually one of the harder parts of this view to defend. I'll just be totally honest with you there. 
This is when Titus, the Roman general, comes in to destroy Jerusalem, who's really just a type or a shadow or a prefigurement of a greater ruler to come. All those pagan rulers, whether it's Nebuchadnezzar or Antiochus or Titus, all these individual, individuals who are the enemies of God's people set up what theologians call a trajectory of images that point us toward the Antichrist who will come and rule over something like the old Roman Empire, which may get revived again. Some people think we're not sure. You might say, when does all this happen? Well, this all occurs at the end of the world. Notice the word in verse 26 that says, after. That signals that we're moving forward into the distant future, and that signals that there's this gap that I'm talking about. Let me show you what it would look like on the chart. This view says there's got to be this distance, this time period for the church age to occur, where Daniel says the Messiah will be cut off, and after that, the city and the sanctuary will be destroyed. But then in the future, remember, there's one more week. There's one more period of seven years for Daniel's people, for the Jewish people, because that's when God's prophetic clock will begin to start again. But for now, during the gap, Israel is on hold because they rejected him as their Messiah. It's, it's like what John, the gospel writer, tells us in chapter 1, verse 11. He came unto his own, but his own received him not. Now, who are his own there? He's talking about who? Israel. They missed him. But it's not that God has forsaken his people. They're just on hold. Anybody have an iPhone? When you're talking to somebody else and then you get another call that comes in, you have an option there that says hold and accept, right? You know what I'm talking about? It's kind of like that. God was on the phone with Israel and he got another call. And God pushed hold and accept. Now he never hung up on Israel. They're still on hold. But who was the person calling in? Who were the people on the other line? Look at what John says. But as many as received him, he gave them the right to become the children of God. To those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become the children of God. Who's that? Who's the ones who did receive him? Who's the ones calling out to God today? That's us. The Jews and Gentiles together. That's the church. How many of you are Gentiles in here this morning? Just raise your hand real quick. See, look around. See, that's most of us. That's the church. We are the ones that God is talking to right now during this time period in this gap. And Israel's on hold. But remember, he didn't hang up on Israel, and he never will. And one day, he's going to get back on the line with them and resume that call. And that's what the last seven years is all about. Take a look as we look at the last section. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. He will confirm a covenant with many for seven years. Who is this? This is the little horn, the Antichrist, the beast, he will make a covenant of peace with Israel for seven years. Here's what it would look like on the chart. That's what begins the last week of Daniel. The Antichrist makes a covenant with Israel, and God's stopwatch starts all over again for the last seven years. But then something very interesting happens in the middle of that week after three and a half years. What will he do? Well, look at what Daniel 9 says he will do. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. And so Daniel says, here's what's going to happen at the end of time. In the middle of that 70th week, after three and one half years of peace, the Antichrist will begin to demand that he himself receives worship as God. Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 the same thing. He will set himself up to be equal with God. 
This is what Daniel calls the abomination of desolation. And Jesus speaks about this as coming in the future as well. Let me remind you of Matthew 24. Therefore, our Lord says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, that is when you see the image of Antichrist set up as God, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Why? Because the Antichrist is about to unleash a holocaust on the Jewish people that has never been seen since the beginning of time. And that moment right there in the middle of those seven years will signal the abomination of desolation and will begin the worst time on planet Earth. The last three and a half years, we call that the Great Tribulation. And so here's the chart all filled in. There are several ways in which the Bible refers to that time. The Tribulation, the Great Tribulation, the Day of God's Wrath, a Day of Distress, the Time of Jacob's Trouble. It's called over 75 times in the Bible, the Day of the Lord, the Day, that Day, that Great Day. It is without question the worst time period on planet Earth. It will be a terrible time. There will be lots of terrible things that will happen during that time. You can read about them in the book of Revelation. But the main issue here, according to Daniel, is that anyone who won't worship the Antichrist will be killed. But despite how bad it will be, the whole purpose of this time, the whole purpose of this great tribulation is to bring Israel, God's chosen people, back to him to bring Israel to their knees, longing for their Messiah to come, who they at that time will finally recognize was none other than Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ. And that's what that final arrow pointing down at the end of the chart represents. When he returns, Paul tells us in Romans 9 through 11 that God has not forsaken his people Israel. But instead, at the end of time, the vast majority of Jewish people alive during that time will turn back in faith to God. Paul tells us, if by their rejection that meant riches for the whole world, what will their acceptance mean except life from the dead? One day they will turn back to him and he will return. Jesus told them in Matthew 23, you will not see me again unless you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And one day they will. And Zechariah tells us in chapter 12, they will look up to heaven and look upon him who they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And then when they do, the Lord will return again and reign as king. That's what Daniel 9 is all about. And here's kind of the whole point. The whole point of this prophecy, the whole point of Daniel chapter 9 is that Daniel sits down far from home in Babylon praying for his people. But despite what things look like on the outside, God discloses to him that he has not forsaken his people. And instead, he has a master plan. It's the plan of the ages. That plan is still moving forward. Even today, it's still moving forward. 4,000 years ago, God created a people, Israel. They are still in this world which is amazing because against that tiny nation, the whole world has gone to war. The devil has warred. All hell has warred against the chosen people of God. Just think of it. Way back in 1446 BC, Egypt and Pharaoh tried to stamp them out. In 722 BC, the Assyrians tried to wipe them out. In 586 BC, Babylon tried to destroy them. So did Medo-Persia. So did Greece. In the first century in 70 AD, Rome tried to crush them. They were persecuted throughout the Middle Ages. Even in the modern era, Hitler tried to annihilate them. The Soviet Union tried to oppress them. Even right now, 
there's radical Islamic terrorists who would like to get rid of them. But, but, but I have a question for you. Where's Pharaoh? What happened to Egypt? What, what, what happened to Medo-Persia? How's the Grecian Empire doing? What happened to Rome? What happened to Adolf Hitler? What happened to the Soviet Union? How's ISIS doing lately? Ancient Egypt is ancient history. Babylon is in ruins. The Roman Empire crumbled and fell apart. Hitler is gone. The Soviet Union has collapsed. ISIS is on the run. See what happens when all of these powers come against God's people, the Jews? All of these powers who come against God's chosen people are destroyed. They come and go. But the nation of Israel remains and lives. Why? The reason is because the God who made this promise in Daniel chapter 9 lives. And God always keeps his promises, period. And that means if God can keep his promise to them, he'll keep his promises to you. And one day soon, ladies and gentlemen, the lion of the tribe of Judah will return. And everybody believes this, no matter what view of Daniel 9 you take. So we can all say amen to this part. He will then set up his kingdom that he promised long ago. And ladies and gentlemen, Messiah, the prince, the king of kings and lord of lords himself will descend from heaven with a shout and bring in everlasting righteousness. And he will finally sit on his throne and then they will sing and then we will sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and blessing and honor and dominion. And we will all bow our knees and we will all cast our crowns before the lamb upon the throne. And then the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. Can we pray? That's the kind of spoiler alert you can get excited about. I'd like to invite the worship team forward as we pray. Heavenly Father, we just bow our heads before you now. Every head bowed, every eye closed as we pray together. Thank you, God, for preserving these words. For us to read them today, by which our faith is solidified in you, the one true God. And thank you for being true to your word and your promises to your people. For if you keep your promises to them, we can know for sure you will keep your promises to us as well. And we believe that today. We believe also you are in complete control of our lives. We believe one day you will come for us and we want to be ready for you. With every head bowed, every eye closed, let me just ask you a question as we spend a quiet moment before the Lord. Are you ready for his return? You say, how do I get ready? Well, you get ready the same way Daniel got ready. You place your faith in the evening sacrifice. You place your faith in the one who was cut off, but not for his own sake, cut off for your sake. You receive him by faith. You say in your heart, doesn't have to be out loud. You just say, dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I know I need your forgiveness. Today, I want to place my faith in you, in you alone, and your work on my behalf. I want to be ready. I want to give my life to you.